when I'm getting ready for an oral argument and I'm thinking about how am I going to talk to judges about this case, I feel like if I can't explain the case to a non-lawyer in less than a minute, then I am not ready to be in court. Explain the case in 30 to 60 seconds or else I'm in trouble. Hello and welcome to Working with me, Dan Doriani, hosting a podcast where we explore faith, work, culture, and the way believers can make a difference in their corner of the world. Today's guest is Ryan Watson, an appellate lawyer for a large law firm. He can't get into the details, but he has worked on some very interesting cases. Well, my guest today is Ryan Watson. Ryan is the partner of a large law firm. He's an appellate lawyer. He's going to tell us what that means in a little bit. Uh, He's appearing as an individual. Uh, In this podcast, we often say, you can find this person's work here or there. And this is the firm they work for, and this is the book they wrote. And we're not doing that today uh, because of, you know, the various concerns about law. So he's speaking for himself, and his firm did let him do so. Ryan, it's good to have you on our podcast today. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. And as you noted, I'll I'll be speaking in my individual capacity, not on behalf of my firm. And I'm really delighted to be here and to have this conversation with you. So let's get a big picture first, if we may. The statistics say there's, you know, 1.3, 1.35 million lawyers in America. We all know about trial lawyers because of TV shows and novels and movies and so forth. Would you just tell us quickly, what are the main kinds of law? Sure. What, what's the family? Uh, what's the family tree? Where do you fit on it? So there really is a wide variety of lawyers. Uh, you know, broadly speaking, lawyers often tend to specialize either based on substantive areas, so patents, criminal law, constitutional law, and or based on skill sets, so being a trial litigator or an appellate litigator. Uh, the major buckets of lawyers, I'd say, You have litigators, both trial litigators and appellate litigators. You have folks who work on transactional issues, so they might facilitate mergers and acquisitions, for example. But you also have a lot of lawyers who are primarily advisors and counselors on a a variety of issues. So regulatory issues, tax, insurance. Environment, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, environment for sure. And then, you know, there are some do-it-all lawyers who I have a ton of respect for who hang out a shingle and, and sort of do everything. Uh, but that, those are kind of some of the main areas. And you have people that are doing that in private practice, like myself. You have folks that work for the government, folks that work as in-house lawyers for a company or a nonprofit. So it's really a wide array of different types. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. So, Ryan, can you tell us what appellate law is? It's a term that not everybody understands. Give a you know 90-second summary for the average citizen. Okay. So an appellate lawyer is looking at a case that has been decided in a lower court by either a jury or a judge. They either have won or lost that issue there, and they're going to take it up to the appeals court. They're going to uh, say what happened below was right or what happened below was wrong, depending on who your client is. And on appeal, you're in front of a, a panel of judges, a, a often three, sometimes more than that. And you're arguing that what happened below by the trial court judge or that jury was was right or wrong as the case may be. Often it focuses on legal issues as opposed to the facts. And it involves a lot of careful thinking and writing of the legal arguments that ultimately culminate in, in going to court for what we call an oral argument. So that's, that's where a lawyer is standing at the podium and, and taking incoming fire from a panel of judges 
really testing the bounds of the legal arguments that you're trying to make in that case. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, so you practice appellate law, and uh, of course, that can be very important. And I would like to ask how you decide, uh, you or people like you, I'll say it that way, how you decide when it's right to appeal something. And I, I'm guessing that you know you have a variety of factors. One would be, how important is this? And you might tackle something that's, that's unlikely to succeed because it's very important. And you also might want to right a wrong or get a law right. And sometimes you might say, this is important, but not important enough. Nobody's, nobody's going to pay for this. Uh, how do you make decisions about what appeals to give yourself to? Yeah, it's a great question. And it is based on a number of factors, like you said. Uh, just to kind of emphasize a couple of the key ones, the most obvious is you take an assessment of the strength of your legal position on the merits. We, we would call it chance of success. Exactly. Is that what an ordinary person would call it? That's what an ordinary person would call it. Okay, great. Yep. That's right. And uh, another thing you have to think about is the standard of review. So that's basically the lens through which an appellate court is going to look at that lower court order. So for a legal issue, a pure legal issue, it's often de novo review, which means the appellate court is going to take a fresh look at the legal issue basically on a blank slate. But if it's a factual issue, then usually the jury or the trial court judge gets quite a lot of deference on their determination of a factual issue, which might relate to credibility and things like that. So this is when facts are in dispute in a case. Is, is that what we're talking about here? Like right. this so, person thinks this is what happened, somebody else thinks somebody else happened? Exactly. So if it's, if it's a factual dispute like that, then it's harder to get the issue overturned on appeal. Uh, but if, it's a, if really what you lost on is a pure issue of law, then the appellate judges are going to be more willing to take a fresh, clean look at the issue. So that really informs whether you file an appeal or not. So the strength of your issue sort of in the abstract, but also which lens is this appellate court going to use when it's looking at the lower court's ruling. So that actually sounds encouraging to me that, you know, if, if there's a law that isn't being implemented correctly or has been uh, understood in a certain way that's incorrect or harmful, that we have a better chance of getting that reversed if we get it in front of the right people, the right judges, the right courtroom. That, that's right. And you know the way you just put that also kind of highlights one of the other factors you take into account when thinking about what to appeal, which is, is this the right appellate court? Is this appellate court that we would be appealing to uh, likely to look favorably up upon this issue? Is it kind of moving the law incrementally in the direction that I'm gonna encourage it to go? Or is this gonna be tough sledding? Uh, and, and that all kind of informs the judgment as well. So if it's a very big issue, you might have many people interested in an appeal that would nudge the interpretation of law one way or the other. And you might say, well, we're going to go to this. We're going to wait until a case comes up in the right jurisdiction That's because right. our chances will be better. That's right. So some issues are going to arise in multiple cases over the period of a few years. And so you can be strategic about if you have a legal issue, where is the best set of facts for me to raise that issue? Which case is the best factual set and which one is in the best forum as well? Mm. Uh, so what do you actually do on uh, you know Monday afternoon from 12 to four? What does an appellate lawyer do when they're not in court? Yeah, so it's a great question. And the reality is a very small percentage of an appellate lawyer's time are spent literally, is spent literally in court. It's, right. you do a lot of work that leads up to maybe a one hour oral argument eventually, uh, but most of your time you spend getting ready for that. And so an appellate lawyer or 
just any lawyer who's focusing on complex legal issues, they really spend a lot of time researching, uh, thinking carefully about the existing precedents, the legal arguments that you're going to make, and working with your team to write up briefs, often a series of briefs to the court that explain the facts, the laws that currently stands, and, and how it applies to your case. And you eventually get to the point where you have, in most cases, an oral argument, which is essentially standing in front of a panel of judges mm. arguing about the law. But most of the work is done really behind the scenes, thinking deeply about the legal issues and writing them up and engaging with the arguments from your opponents. Yeah. So the writing up part is one I want to talk about. And of course, you know, we can't talk about any particular cases you've worked on, but you have let me read some of your work. And I have to say, some of it was um, laugh out loud funny. And I don't know if you were aiming to be funny or not. It seemed like, um, I mean, it was delightful to read and well-crafted. And this is what, of course, you know, takes hours and hours. Do you aim to delight the judge? Do you, do you aim, dare I say it, to entertain the judge so that they'll be favorably disposed? Or are you just like a funny guy when you get a, <laughs> a keyboard in your hand? Well, you know, it, it really depends on the case. Uh, you know, some cases levity is appropriate and sometimes not. Uh, some cases you're trying to get the court to really pay attention to your case. So the most pithy way that you can sum up the issue uh, has the best chance of sort of getting their attention and, and helping them grasp it quickly. Uh, and then some cases, of course, are, are extremely technical and not really appropriate for, for the humor. So you have to have to yeah. kind of take that case by case. <laughs> right. You you cannot get humor out of some situations, I'm sure, no matter how much you would like to. That's right. So hopefully you were laughing at the briefs where I intended that and not laughing. Yes. At all, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I wish I could share what they were about. So I I do want to say it is interesting. I mean, I think you must try work, you know, you must work hard to be factual, accurate, pithy, but also a little bit vibrant and ear catching is the way I put it. And that you're always trying to make people I have, a, I'll put it this way. I have a friend who's a lawyer who says, uh, the judge and the jury usually decide for the lawyer they like better. <laughs> well, what would you say to that? Now, that was an offhand comment at a dinner. I mean, he wasn't trying to give a global view. But there's just some truth to that. There certainly is some truth to that. Um, hopefully, the jury is paying attention to the uh, to the law and the facts as well. Yes. Uh, but there's something to that. And you know, when, when you're writing an appellate brief or any, any written submission for a court, you're right that you're trying to have sort of an ear-catching top-line way to summarize the case. You know, when I'm getting ready for an oral argument, for example, when we've written everything up already, and I'm thinking about how am I going to talk to judges about this case, I feel like if I can't explain the case to a non-lawyer in less than a minute, then I am not ready to be in court. And I need to be able to sit down with my wife and, and explain the case in 30 to 60 seconds or else I'm in trouble. Yeah, yeah. I actually call it the 11-year-old test. Yeah. Uh, could you explain this to an intelligent, attentive 11-year-old? And right. if you can't, then you're, you probably are not ready and you're certainly not going to capture the attention. But of course, That's there's much more to it than, than uh, you know, delight and skills of communication. Uh, there are really substantive issues and I would love to talk about a couple of those uh, starting now, if that's okay. So uh, in America, we love to stress freedom of speech, but one issue, well, this seems to be pretty well settled and we seem to keep on establishing, yes, indeed, you're free to speak unless it's libelous or endangers other people. But there's an issue lately that people call compelled speech. And that would occur when the government 
insists or demands or requires legally that somebody say something. We're all familiar with this, I think, through advertisements for medications, right? You know, and, and you have to say all, all the ways this medication can damage, even kill you. And, you know, you can't put on an advertisement for medication without that. But that's, that's only one of many forms of compelled speech. You have worked on compelled speech cases. Just tell us about it a little bit. What, what does the term mean? Why is it important to rein in the demand, the government's demand for compelled speech? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a fascinating area of law. Uh, the basic idea is that, as a general matter, the government should not be able to force a person or an entity to make statements that they don't want to make. And Justice Robert Jackson pretty famously summed up the, the idea of compelled speech uh, when he said, if there's any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it's that no official can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics or nationalism or religion or other matters of opinion, or to force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. And so he said that in a case that involved West Virginia's attempt to force children to, to stand and to salute the flag and to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And the Jehovah's Witnesses brought a case uh, saying that it was against their religious beliefs to do so. And the Supreme Court uh, vigorously agreed with them uh, that mm -hmm. the, the government cannot do that. And you but know, really, the government seems to try to, to, to compel people to say things uh, anyway, go ahead. how does that work out? <laughs> they do, they do. And there are quite a few cases that involve compelled speech and a lot of sort of complex nuances to it. But the, the basic idea that the Supreme Court has recognized is that it's part of the individual freedom of mind, not only to be able to speak freely as a general matter, but also to be able to be free of compelled speech. And it's, it's in some sense demeaning uh, for free and in independent individuals to have to utter words with which they disagree. So that's kind of what is animating this whole area of law. Yeah, right. So Ryan, you know, compelled speech is kind of an abstract issue to a lot of people. Can you just give us a concrete example of a time when compelled speech has come up, Supreme Court or Circuit Court in recent times? Give us an example if you can. Sure. So a recent example that comes to mind is that in 2018, uh, the Supreme Court had a case that involved a California requirement uh, where pregnancy clinics that were trying to provide uh, services to, to pregnant women uh, were compelled to post notices talking about the availability of low-cost abortions. So these are pregnancy clinics that are largely there to provide options other than abortion, and they were being required to essentially advertise that you can get low-cost abortions elsewhere. And so they're being compelled to advertise something that's contrary to their purpose. Correct. As an entity. Correct. That's right. right. What happened? And so they, they took that case all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, invalidated that requirement and said that it, uh, it went too far and that they can't be compelled to do that. The, the state did not have a good enough reason to force them to do that. And, and basically the court said, look, this is presumptively unconstitutional to do this. Mm. And we're going to take a very close look at it under what's called strict scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And they said, look, if, if the state really wanted to provide uh, low income women with this information, it would have required this disclosure at more types of clinics. So it's yes. kind of odd that mm -hmm. only these pregnancy clinics are being targeted by this requirement. Mm -hmm. And also, if the state really wanted to communicate this information 
it could do so itself. It could run an information campaign telling them about yeah, the there, there are many venues for doing this. Why, why should these people be singled out? That's that's what the court said. So that's a that's an example of a recent compelled speech case involving an entity as opposed to you know an individual. And I think it's a good example. Yes. So I'll say it a different way. When I pass by a billboard that advertises casinos or something like that, I don't want you to comment on casinos per se, but let's just suppose Joe Citizen passes a casino, a pastor maybe passes by a casino advertisement, and he knows that he that there are many many people who become addicted to gambling and lose a lot of money. I might wish that the government would say, and you have to put up here, go to this casino and you will lose your money most likely. (laughs) But that's not the place of the government. It's the place of the church or educational institutions or mathematicians to make that case. Right. And that's right. And to veer slightly outside of the pure legal answer, I also think the most effective way to communicate that sort of message typically is not to compel someone to sort of condemn their own product or their own purpose, but rather, like you said, there's a place for faith communities, for geographic communities, for families to address these issues. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is a coalition of believers who hold the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. What all that means is we care about the church, we care about truth, and work hard to preserve and advance it every day. Connect with our broadcast, podcast, publishing, internet, and event platforms at workingwithdan.org. Thank you for your prayerful and financial support of the Alliance. So let me ask another question. Have you ever um, defended a religious organization, a religious cause? And can you tell us anything about the, the role of, I'm not asking you to discuss a particular case, which you probably can't do, but uh, what's the place of appellate law in religious freedom cases? Yeah, I have been involved in litigating cases and filing briefs involving religious liberties of individuals and institutions. And actually, I can give an example of a recent uh, such case that I that I worked on. Uh, there was a Supreme Court case called Trinity Lutheran uh, a few years ago. And in that case, uh, I and my colleagues filed a, a friend of the court brief in the case. What we were really arguing about is in that case, the state had excluded a religious entity from being eligible for a grant. So this was a religious school that wanted to apply for a grant to resurface their playground with a safer uh, substance. And there were secular schools and religious schools who were applying through this grant program. And the state said, uh, no, you're religious and therefore we will not consider you. Even though on all of the objective criteria, they would have gotten the grant. They were better qualified than the others. And so, uh, just yeah. quickly interrupt, are, the, are these other schools, secular schools, were secular private schools and public schools? And so everybody, every kind of school except the Christian school was allowed to apply, even uh, non-public schools. It, right. Any type of school, including a secular private school, could apply. But the state was worried that it was going to violate the Constitution by giving any money to a religious entity. And so they said, we're going to exclude you completely from getting these grants. And that, that case went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ultimately said, you cannot exclude a religious entity in that way. They need to be able to compete on equal footing, you know, based on neutral objective criteria for these sorts mm-hmm. of grants. And it actually violates the constitution to exclude them. 
because it's actually disestablishing. It's not we're, you're not establishing religion by doing this. You're disestablishing or barring religion from the public square. Right. It was a fascinating case because, as you probably know, there are actually two clauses in the Constitution about religion, and one says Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion, and the other says Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. And so Missouri was very worried about violating the establishment clause and was concerned that giving any money for any purpose to a religious school would effectively establish a religion. Uh, and of course, the school was focusing on the other clause saying, not only is that not an establishment clause violation, but you've gone so far in service of that clause that you've violated the other one. And the Supreme Court you know, ultimately agreed with that. An interesting case, because in the briefing, it addressed issues like, why is it okay for a state to to provide police or fire protection for right? a school, Christian for school, school including or, or a Muslim school or any school, right? We don't generally think it's a good idea to withhold that protection from a synagogue or a mosque or a church just right, because right. they're religious. And on essentially that same principle, they shouldn't be excluded from a grant program like this as well. Well, they're even both in the same realm of safety. So basically you're saying, if I understand correctly, wall of separation, there's a separation, but we don't want to make a giant, thick, high wall that is so sharp, so high, to keep the metaphor, that you're preventing the free exercise of religion. Right. The Supreme Court, exactly. They said, you've gone so far in your notion of, of this wall yes. that you've actually created a constitutional violation of the other clause. Yeah, that's good. So I want to ask another kind of a question. And again, I'll let you decide to what, to what degree you can speak or not. But one of the things lawyers sometimes have to do is represent a client that they don't like. Trial lawyers might have to represent um, a client they think is guilty, maybe of a serious crime, but they have to defend them in the courtroom, et cetera. You probably, at some point in your career, will need to defend a corporation or an entity that creates a product or sells something or has some commercial activity that you personally don't like or wouldn't participate in, and yet you would defend them in court. Why, how can you, and I'm not meaning this is a trick question, I want, you to, I want you to look good and sound good, I'm with you, I'm for you. Why is it important sometimes for lawyers of faith, I mean, principled people, men and women, to say, I don't particularly like this um, this entity, this corporation, but their rights need to be protected here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna fight for them in the courtroom because of the legal issues involved. So I think the the simple answer is that if you're a litigator in the U.S., you generally buy into the notion that our justice system is designed so that an advocate is going to represent each party. You have a neutral arbiter in the case, which will be a, a jury or a judge or a panel of judges and they have a duty to objectively decide the case. But then our system is set up so that there is an advocate that's going to zealously represent each side within the bounds of rules and ethical constraints. And once that airing of the issues uh, happens in court, someone else, the judge or the jury is going to make that objective decision. So I think that our justice system, although it's imperfect, has this very elegant notion that each side is entitled to have their day in court and to have an advocate representing them. And it's it's largely the same reasoning that prompted John Adams rather famously to represent British soldiers who were accused of murder in the Boston Massacre. Not exactly a popular- Not a career thing. promoting move. <laughs> right, well, I mean, it, it turned out well for him, but- <laughs> Yeah, it did, but I mean, in the short run, he probably got a few tomatoes thrown at him or something. That, that's exactly right. But you know, I think he bought into the notion that, look, uh, we can feel pretty good about the results 
that our system generates as long as we're giving each side their day in court with an advocate, you know, zealously representing them. And, and so that's, that's what animates a lot of what I do. Do I enjoy doing pro bono work uh, where I pick a case that's something that's really near and dear to my heart? Of course. Uh, but in, I still am very excited about working on all of the other cases as well, because I'm really kind of proud of the role that I can play in the, in the justice system. Yeah. So I'm going to be as vague as I can possibly be. So let's just imagine that there's some food or beverage that you think is reprehensible for some reason. What, you know, it's, it's got too much sugar, too many calories, depletes you know, land resources, whatever the reason might be. You could take a case for a firm that produces this product, this food or beverage that you intensely dislike and with a good conscience defend them in court because you believe they need to be represented. There's a legal issue that matters here. And, and maybe, may I ask, not just for them, but for other people. That, that's exactly right. And as I alluded to before, there are all sorts of rules and ethical constraints that, that guide the sorts of arguments you can make in court and, and what you can do. But within the bounds of that system, that's exactly right. I, I'm happy to, to do that. And absolutely. And you don't go to bed feeling guilty at night because you... Uh, because you represented a firm whose products you wouldn't use personally. No, I go to bed feeling like I did my job and that's the way the system is designed. Okay, great. That's great. Let me ask you another question. Is there any particular kind of cause you like to promote or defend? Yes, uh, there are quite a few, but let me give an example. I mentioned uh, pro bono yes, work yes. a minute ago. Uh, so pro bono work is basically a chunk of a lawyer's work that they do for free. Uh, in the public interest. And I've quite enjoyed pro bono work over the years, including the religious liberties work that we talked about a minute ago. Uh, but I've also done a number of uh, immigration law cases as well. So that, that's, that's something that I've really enjoyed. Um, and really, it's motivated largely by my faith in terms of why I got involved in it. Uh, my firm has a pro bono effort that involves representing immigrants that are seeking asylum and other legal relief. These are migrants, typically women, sometimes with children, uh, who are fleeing life-threatening gender-based or gang-based violence in their home countries or politically-based violence. Uh, and so we actually opened a full-time, fully-staffed office down in Laredo, Texas, uh, because what we realized is the detention facilities that these immigrants are being held in near the big cities were being served by lawyers, but there were places like Laredo that is about a three hour drive from San Antonio right. that are basically right. a black hole in terms of legal yes. assistance. And so we, we opened a physical office down there and have lawyers who are working on all aspects of these, these cases. And I've done a lot of the appellate work uh, for that project and in terms of litigating specific cases, but also uh, working with a team to see what are the overarching legal issues that are arising in hundreds of these cases and, and coming up with arguments for them. Yeah, well, that, that's important work. And obviously, as a believer, you know, true religion, true faith proves itself by caring for orphans and widows in their distress, which stands for the needy in general. And what I almost feel like um, you know, we, wish, we wish we could name your firm right now so they could get kudos for setting up an office where they probably... <laughs> I mean, there's probably not a whole lot of uh, fees generated from that activity. So that's that's outstanding. And it's good to hear that, uh, yeah, that that's part of your life. Yeah, it really is. And, and like you said, I mean, God's concern for 
and love for the vulnerable. It disadvantaged persons and, and immigrants is just evident throughout the Bible. You know, Deuteronomy talks about how the Lord loves the immigrant. And we were strangers and aliens. And the Absolutely. Lord had compassion on us. We were, you know, we were slaves in Egypt, right? And That's right. Homeless and God brought us into his home. That's great. And you know, that, that work, it's been a really great springboard to talk about why I do some of the work, right? Because mm. immigration is such a politically loaded issue that I've, I've had the occasion where someone who perceives themselves as more liberal politically than me will say, well, why are you doing immigration work? You seem more conservative than I do. And, you know, I don't think it's principally a conservative or a, a liberal right. issue, just like yeah. so many things these days. It's so many things, yeah. No doubt. We politicize that which is not political. And, and we therefore get into strange fights and can't become allies of people that are natural allies because we care about the same issues, which are really not political. They're matters of justice and love and mercy, right? Well, let me move to uh, lightning round sorts of things. Uh, so the idea of lightning round is you can't answer for more than a minute or, you know, you drop through a hole in the floor or, or something along those lines. So uh, first of all, just tell us very quickly, at one point at least, most people who have a law degree weren't practicing law. Uh, now, the truth of the matter is, it's not meant to be a critique of law schools. A lot of seminary grads, I, I teach at a seminary, a lot of seminary grads aren't pastors and never have been and never will be. Uh, how do you use a law degree without practicing law? So there are a lot of people who do that, and it's basically because law school teaches you how to think rigorously and logically and it teaches you how to communicate orally and in writing in a way that that, that is well-suited to advocacy. So many people draw on those, those analytical and communication skills in a variety of fora that aren't really practicing law. So business executives, heads of nonprofits, public policy analysts, academics, authors, journalists, and the like. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Um, second question, tell our audience, please, something about the legal profession that they probably don't know. Okay, so there's a part of the Supreme Court's work that is sometimes referred to as the shadow docket. These are cases in which the Supreme Court is issuing some sort of ruling without actually hearing the case in the usual course. So not having full briefing and an oral argument, they're doing it in a more abbreviated fashion. It's often in an emergency posture when there's not enough time to really go through the usual procedure. Uh, but they decide quite a few issues that way, including quite consequential ones. Uh, and I think people don't really know about that because it doesn't get the oral argument press. I got to tell you, I didn't know about it. And that's fascinating. Even more random questions. Ready? Okay. If you could do anything for one year, no consequences, you're not going to lose your job. Money's no object. Don't worry about any logistical question. What would you do for a year? So that's really easy. I would, I would be a color commentator for NFL games. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm an avid uh, Baltimore Ravens fan. And as my wife and kids will tell you, I'm sometimes practically calling the game from the sofa for better or worse. <laughs> I think probably worse. I got to tell you, it only takes about 17 days. So <laughs> you have to figure out what to do in the other 348 days. Unless, uh, well, unless they make the playoffs, which they often do. I'll give you that. That's true. Yeah. So okay, uh, you know, my, my dream job would be, you know, teaming up with someone else I saw on your podcast list, Joe Buck. Okay, right? <laughs> that would be fun. That would be fun. Um, he's a nice guy too, by the way. You'd probably enjoy each other. Is there a book, TV show, movie, anything that that's reasonably accurate in describing the work or depicting the work of law? So as you might imagine, many of them are not accurate. Yeah, yes, that's why I asked that question. <laughs> that's the question. Right. So the movie, My Cousin Vinny, 
Oh, really? Yeah, it's often considered to be a reasonably accurate portrayal of trial litigation. Uh, You know, in terms of properly entering in evidence, uh, objecting to opening statements that are too argumentative, you know, all sort of all of the ins and outs of actually litigating litigating a case and the evidentiary issues are pretty reasonably. I'm not going to say it's completely accurate, but it's it's does a better job than most. I have to say that is not the answer I anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a it's a middle brow program. Anyway, that's great. That's fascinating. It is. Uh, you're you're teaching me all the time. <laughs> Is there a law you would like to change? Not you personally. Is there a law you would like to see changed? So I mentioned my immigration work a few minutes ago, and that's an area where I would like to see some change. I think most people can agree that there are at least parts of, perhaps many parts of the immigration system that are quite flawed and are not working uh, effectively. And of course, there's a wide range of views about how to go about fixing that, but it's a system that is not working as well as it should, in my view. So I'd like to see some change there, and in particular for it to be easier for victims of domestic violence to seek refuge and and obtain legal relief in the U.S. Great. Uh, Imagine you're on the elevator going from the first to the 40th floor on a pretty fast elevator with a highly intelligent 15-year-old girl who just saw my cousin Vinny, and she wants to be a lawyer. What would you say to her? Okay, well, like any good preacher or lawyer, you need three quick points, right? Okay. Okay, so most important skill for a lawyer is your judgment. So always keep that in mind and learn how to make level-headed and prudent judgment calls. Secondly, you need to always be thinking not only about the issue in front of you, but about the next issue. What are the consequences of the issue that's in front of you? What's the one that's coming around the bend? And then thirdly, credibility. It's essential for a lawyer to have credibility, you need to jealously guard it. If you lose it, it's hard to ever get it back. So that that has to animate everything you do. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. It has been uh, very illuminating to hear from you today. Keep up the good work. We hope you practice law brilliantly and with sound judgment and great credibility for many years defending worthwhile causes. Thank you. Well, thanks, Dan. It was my pleasure to be here and uh, good luck with the podcast. I'll, I'll keep listening. We're thankful for today's guest and also extend special thanks to our sponsor, the Alliance for Confessing Evangelicals. Please check out their site, Reformation 21. That's the principal host of this podcast. If you want to put your faith to work and change your corner of the world, visit our website, the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. Look for faithandworkstl.org, that's one word, will help you start a cohort with like-minded believers who also want to practice their faith at work. This podcast is donor-supported. To keep us going, please donate on our website. Maybe more importantly, you can support us by listening, by subscribing, by sharing, by liking us, by posting us on your favorite platform, or go old school and tell a friend.